0: All right, today we get to one of the most misunderstood and misused and one of the most important scriptures to understand uh, probably in the whole Bible. And so as we unpack this, I'm going to take a good bit of time to explain what the passage means. But just to give you a heads up kind of in where we're going, what Jesus is doing here is he's essentially calling people out who have a critical spirit. Uh, people who have a a spirit of condemnation, a spirit of censure, where they're just walking around and they just notice all the things that are wrong and love to tell other people about all those things that are wrong with other people and with the world around them. You know, some people I think actually believe that a critical spirit is their gift to the world. Um, They actually believe that that their ability to notice all the things that are wrong and point them out is their greatest spiritual attribute. But I haven't seen that one yet in all the spiritual gift lists that are actually in the Bible. Um, It reminds me of a story I heard of a son who kept on bringing different girls home to meet his mother. And one by one, I mean, every single time the mother could find something wrong with every girl that he brought home. And he was like, this is insane. So he started talking to his friend. And his friend was like, you know what you should probably do? Find a girl who is just like your mom. Maybe then the mom, maybe she'll like this girl. And so he did. He looked high and low, found a girl that looked almost like her mother, his mother and kind of acted like her and brought her home. And sure enough, the mother just loved this girl. Just thought she was the <laughs> most amazing person. And then he went to his friend. His friend asked, kind of follow up, you know, what happened. He's like, yeah, it actually worked out. But he said, my problem now is that My dad is having a hard time getting along with this girl that I brought home. Uh, And so we just have this natural ability, and we all do to some extent. This has been a very convicting sermon for me, personally, as I've prepared it this week. This ability, many of us have this ability to just walk in a room, notice what's wrong, and in our minds just eviscerate the people around us. It's really actually a sign of insecurity, uh, it's a sign of not feeling very good about how we're doing personally, not being secure in the grace of God. And so we have to tear everyone down so that we compare favorably. So this sermon, uh, Jesus really does go there in the sermon. Uh, he really goes to some hard places, but some places I believe that the church needs to hear. You know, most of us who come to the church, we come to the church because we're so incredibly aware that we need the grace of God. We need it. I mean, we want to be and we are in many ways a hospital for broken sinners. Martin Luther said in his commentary to Galatians in the preface that he felt when he came to Christ like he was like, if you, were, you can see in, in your mind if you've ever been to a gigantic lake that has been, that there's no water in that lake anymore. And so the ground is cracked and dry and there are these huge cracks in the mud As far as you can see, and and Martin Luther said that was what my life was like before I met Christ. I had these giant gaping cracks and wounds in my life, and I needed grace. And the grace of the gospel was that healing balm for me. And that's what we want the church to be like, but we need to ask ourselves the question, are we that kind of church? Are we those kind of people? Or are we the kind of people when we notice the giant gaping cracks in people's lives, that instead of filling those cracks with grace, we fill them with judgment, and we fill them with criticism. And we need to be changed by the gospel. The gospel is good news for us in this area. Today, we walk with Jesus as he confronts us about a critical, condemning, self-righteous, pharisaical spirit in the church. So we're going to start with understanding Jesus' statement, judge not, what does it mean? Then we're going to talk about the danger of a critical or a hypercritical spirit in the church. And then third, we're going to perform Christian eye surgery. How does that happen? It happens through prayer, repentance, and love. So we're going to start with understanding the statement, judge not. Judge not. Again, it's very misunderstood, so listen up to what judge not cannot mean in this context because of other places that Scripture talks about. What judging does mean. Okay, so judge not cannot mean that you don't have an opinion about other people. It can't mean that because Jesus tells us to look out for false teachers, wolf in, in sheep's clothing, and all kinds of commands like this. Right after this in the Matthew passage, he said, Don't throw your pearls before the pigs. And so there must be a way of knowing who the false teachers are, who the pigs are, who the wolves are. You're supposed to live with a discerning mind. You're supposed to know God's word and actively use that as you look at the world and look at other people. So judge not cannot mean that we don't uh, look at other people through the lens of Scripture. So judge not also cannot mean that there should be no rule of law in the political or court system. Can't mean that because in Romans 13 and many other places, to have a judicial system and a legal system, and a political system that is righteous, that encourages the good and keeps evil at bay is a good thing. So that can't mean that. It also can't mean that there should be no government or discipline in the church. It absolutely cannot mean that. There must be discipline according to scripture in the church. The church should rightly govern itself. We say in the PCA, I'm sure many other denominations say the same thing, that we have one rule of faith and practice, and that's the Bible, that's the Scriptures. And so we as a church are called to live up to the, the commands and the doctrines of Scripture insofar as we can. And we're held accountable to that standard, and we should be. And as we look around at our, in our world today and what's going on in the church, as painful as it is to see, Uh, What's come out in the guidepost report about the Southern Baptist Church and the um, systemic cover-up of abuse cases. Uh, As we look at uh, Mars Hill and what has been, been exposed through the Christianity Today podcast about what happened with the church at Mars Hill. As we read about Hillsong United and some of the exposés that are being written, as painful as this is, we, we really should not need to have the world holding the church accountable for our own standards. But right now, apparently we do. Right now we need watching eyes, or we, what we really need is we need the church, and the church is being reckoned with. And, and the church actually needs to be reckoned with in a lot of these ways. Um, so what, what goes on, though, there, as there are complaints, as there are stories that come, we need to do thorough... Um, well-founded investigations into what is going on you don't you know you have to really look into it but yes we need accountability we need government and discipline in the church so judge not cannot mean that the church does not hold itself to the standards of the scriptures we need to rejoice when um when sin is, is exposed and also we need to um i know for me as i've as i've seen what's gone on um in the Southern Baptist Church, and, and I know in many churches, it's just been, it's been very painful um, to watch. But, but this, is, this is needed for the, for the scriptures to judge us as leaders and as churches. Uh, and fourth, judge not cannot mean that we don't make judgments about right doctrine. So that first point was more about right practice and right living. Judge not cannot mean that we don't make judgments about right doctrine. 1 Timothy 4.16 says, watch your doctrine closely, Paul says to Timothy, for if you do, it will save both you and your hearers. So what this means, there's many other examples of this where if you lose right doctrine or if you begin to lose right doctrine, the result is that people no longer know the doctrines of grace and they can't come to Christ and be saved. And so all of these things are what judge not cannot mean. It can't mean those things. We are called to judge appropriately, in those ways according to what Scripture says. So, what is meant here by "judge not"? Then, and I already gave you a preview of it. Jesus is teaching us here about the danger of a condemning spirit, a hypercritical spirit. A condemning spirit is uh, it's found in someone it's, it's found in someone who's self righteous, Pharisaical, who who puts themselves in in the place of God, in the sense that they look at people through their own lens, and they become the judge and the jury, and they size people up, and they decide what's true. And if they're not careful, they live in that reality to the point that they don't even believe that, that grace could redeem or is active in this person, in this, active in this person's life. For example, you can say, you can just live in this reality that you've sized this person up, and you just kind of determine that this person's probably not ever going to change. They're probably not ever going to change. And so you don't pray for them. You don't long for them to know God's grace. I mean, I had a neighbor yesterday that, that uh, got frustrated in his front yard and, and just blew up and just dropped an F-bomb all over our neighborhood. And uh, Claire was out there. And uh, Claire kind of looked at me and, um, you know, I need to have a conversation with her about that because honestly – As bad as that moment was for this person, that moment, I don't know this guy's story. I don't know all that's going on in his life. And who knows what God's grace could do in this person's life. So we need to be careful that we don't sit in this place of judgment. We need to remember John 8. He who was without sin, let him cast the first stone. So one question we need to ask, if if you find yourself in this critical place as a Christian, we need to think of 1 Corinthians 13. Love hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. When we're in a critical place, what we tend to do is we tend to want to keep people at a distance from us. And in that space, what we do is we criticize and condemn and eviscerate. But what God calls us to do in his love is to move toward broken people and to be agents of mercy and grace in their lives. I mean, we see this often. If we're honest, we see it in our marriages. It's so tempting and, and so easy to get into a pattern of, of cynicism and criticism where you just get in this cycle of, of all you really start noticing in your spouse are the things that need to change rather than the things that should be encouraged. We get in this pattern with churches. I was talking with a friend of mine the other day that moved to a new area and can't find a church and he honestly just told me, he's a really good friend, he told me, yeah, what we've gotten into the pattern of is every day we go home and all we do after visiting churches is we just tear those churches apart. We just rip them to shreds, and then we find that nothing measures up. They've been looking for a church for a long, long time. I mean, in and, and your spouse and in the church, there is a whole lot to find that's broken. Now, there's a whole lot to find that is in need of grace and redemption. The, the the person that can walk into a situation that's obviously broken and still see the grace of God at work is the person that where God's grace is really at work in them. You know, one scripture that really helps here is Romans 14, where Paul shows us the way to see ourselves clearly. He says this, there's one main thing that matters. There's one main thing that matters. There's this controversy that's arisen in the church. And where Paul lands in giving instruction to the Romans is that what really matters in this situation is the grace of God. They wanted to uh, keep people apart from one another because of all these little Minute beliefs that they had, and all these concerns that were being raised. But what Paul said, what really matters is the grace of God being preserved in the church. And what we can take away from this is this if nearly everything matters to you, if you fixate on all kinds of what would be honestly considered minor details, and you just can't let them go, you may take that to be a sign of being spiritually strong because you care so much but actually Paul's point is that because you care so much about so many little minute things Paul says that actually you're in the position of being spiritually weak you're the spiritually weak one if you walk into a room and all you can notice or you walk into your marriage or you walk into the church and all you can notice is all that is broken that is not a sign of being spiritually strong that is a sign of being spiritually weak The problem is that the Pharisees or the self-righteous person or the hypercritical person has a hard time seeing themselves in the place of being weak because to be critical makes them feel so strong. And so the grace of the gospel needs to melt the heart of the person who is hypercritical. And it's really important that we learn this here because we need to be careful not to let matters of preference turn into matters of prejudice. I'm going to say that again. We need to make sure that matters of preference don't turn into matters of prejudice. Listen, there are a lot of things that that we can care about out here in the world. There's a lot of things you can fixate on and say, this thing to me matters a tremendous amount. But you need to measure that up in your conscience with the word of God and the grace of the gospel. You know, ultimately, your conscience is not king. God is king. And you need to let the grace of the gospel reign in your life, and and reorder your priorities so that grace becomes the number one priority, and then other things become lesser. Now, I will say this: this is a this is one of those things in Scripture where you sit on a razor's edge because you can fall in the wrong direction. Because I, I have many Southern Baptist brothers that I love, but the this, the problem with the Southern Baptists and what happened there is they said they valued the gospel so much and evangelism so much that they didn't want to look at the sin that was being brought up about sexual abuse. And so they valued grace so much that they didn't want to take sin seriously. That is not at all where we need to go with this. Okay, We do take sin seriously. We absolutely do. Sexual abuse is not minute. (laughs) It's the opposite of that. What I'm talking about is Christians who fixate on matters of matters of um, opinion, and then they make those matters matters of prejudice. And we need to be very careful about that because it can drive us away from one another in the church. So what what does Jesus mean here? He says, don't judge, but then so that you will not be judged. What does that mean? So that you will not be judged. I really got into this this week um, to understand what it means. So there are two types of eternal judgment in Scripture. You may be aware of this. Two types of eternal judgment. One type of eternal judgment is the judgment of justification. Are you in Christ or are you not in Christ? You find this in many places. But John five twenty four, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So there is this faith in Christ that justifies us, and so in this eternal judgment, the judgment between heaven or hell, all that matters is your faith in Jesus, and you go, if you're in Christ, you go to be with the Lord. If you're not in Christ, you go to be away from the Lord in hell, okay? That's the first kind of judgment. The second kind of eternal judgment is taught elsewhere in Scripture. It's a judgment of rewards in eternity based on how we live our lives. And so in this judgment, you can find this also in Romans 14, which I spoke from earlier, where Paul says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, he says, The second type of judgment is not to determine our eternal destiny, but it will impact our eternal destiny. It will affect eternity for us, not in terms of heaven or hell, but in terms of what our life will be like in eternity. It will matter for us in eternity, not in destination, but in quality. And so in terms of when we stand before the Lord and he evaluates our life, and we stand before God, The first judgment is, will you you go destination heaven or hell? The second is, how did you live? Did you live according to the grace that I've given you or not? And that's the second type that we're talking about here. So when he says, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you, etc. What does it mean? Well, I think there is one way in which you can read this, where in this life, before we reach eternity, that the Lord blesses those who are gracious with other people. Uh, how he works that out, I don't know. The Lord also has a way of disciplining those who are ungracious with other people. You can look at the children of Israel. They would be murmuring and complaining, and then a wasting disease would come upon them. I think that's really hard to understand because we get sick all the time, and it, it, you can get a little bit neurotic to be like, am I sick because I just complained? And So it's hard, but I do believe that in general in life, there is a a way that God, Uh, Works with us uh, depending on how we live our lives to discipline us to make us more like Him. But in eternity, I believe the best interpretation of this passage is this in the second judgment, this judgment of rewards, or we could call it a judgment based on grace, God will use our own standards for others on us when He judges us. Have you been unmerciful? Then you will be judged by the same unmerciful standard. Have you been generous? that same standard of generosity will be applied. Have you been an overbearing critic? The Lord in the second judgment will be more critical of you. You could call the second judgment a judgment of grace. How much was your life, as Jesus is looking at us, how much is your life looking like the grace that you've received from me? Did you receive my grace and then give that grace out to others? Or did you receive my grace and not, and not be changed by it and so then become the critic of others? And in some way, Jesus is saying the standard that you have used with other people will be used back to you. Either in this life or in the life to come. You could say, how is this fair? Well, there are these scriptures, to whom much is given, much is expected. There's the scripture in Romans 2, 1, where it, it's clear that he says, who are you, O man? To pass judgment. If you can judge other people rightly and you can see them clearly, then you understand what truth is. Therefore, you can be judged by that same standard going forward. This is the teaching here. To those who have been given grace through the cross, Jesus expects not a spirit of judgment, but a spirit of love and patient endurance. And so that's the teaching here. The judging is this hypercritical spirit. So then how do we kind of get rid of that? He goes on, the danger of a critical condemning spirit in the church, this is the second point this morning. Jesus goes into this log and speck analogy. He's saying, basically, like I just said earlier, like if you can understand truth well enough to see that log in someone else, and that, that speck in someone else's eye, why can you not take that same standard and look at yourself? And what we find is that we're so poor at applying that that same standard to ourselves that Jesus encourages us since you're so poor at that then stop judging other people like if you're so bad at seeing yourself then stop trying to see other people clearly he uses this analogy here of the blind ophthalmologist it's kind of ridiculous to think about but think about going to the eye doctor to have eye surgery done and the guy is blind and you're like you know what I think I'm going to opt out here you know and I think that's what Jesus is saying is like, honestly, in the church, what you're doing is you have a bunch of blind people who can't see themselves clearly, and they're trying to do operation on others. Instead, what you need to do yourself is stop being so focused on other people, but instead focus on yourself. Focus on where you need to grow. And then as you grow and you understand yourself, maybe then you can help other people grow. But one way or another, you know, the blind ophthalmologist does bad surgery. And so you need to make sure that you yourself are not blind. And so how do we do this? So ultimately, this work of, of moving from being hypercritical to being gracious is an act of God. It is a work of God. It has to be because, because for all of us, I mean, it's just beyond us to change our own hearts. But in the process of becoming, moving from being a condemning person to a more loving person, Different from justification and salvation, where that is an act of God alone, where he just reaches down and saves us and transforms us. This is a work of sanctification. And in sanctification, which is this process of growing as a Christian, we are also involved in that process. We don't just sit idly by and wait for God to do his work in us. Jesus is actually calling us on our own side to not judge. He's actually calling us not to be hypocritical. So how do we do this? How do we get to be more focused on this log in our own eyes instead of the speck in other people? Well, we need to move from, first of all, there's three stages here. We need to move from this stage of I am a victim. I am a victim. Now, honestly, you are a victim. I mean, seriously, like people have sinned against you. Absolutely. People have sinned against you often egregiously. And if it could be your family of origin, your mother, or your father, it could be a sibling. Um, it could be uh, someone outside of your family uh, that has done you harm. Uh, maybe you were abused. And if you, you are a victim, we all have been victimized by other people's sin. And often what takes us, if, we go, if you go to counseling, if you come talk to me or you go to a counselor, what moves you into that counseling room usually is that you are processing that you have been victimized by other people in some way. And you have been, and that is a real part of spiritual change. There's a real part of, of noticing, like, I have been wronged. And we all have been wronged. And you have been wronged. But as you go through counseling, you recognize that you really need to transition at some point in order to grow spiritually. You need to transition from I am a victim to i victimize other people you have to transition from i have been done wrong to i also do other people wrong why do you need to make that transition because when you can see the sin of other people it's hard for you to experience the grace of god in that place you can't really experience the grace of god for someone else's sin you might be able to experience the grace of god to some extent because you have been impacted by their sin You have been brought into the misery of this world by their sin, and so you can experience grace in that way. But where transformation continues to happen is when you can move to the state of, I victimize other people. You recognize that it's not just other people that have sinned against you that is causing you the problems in this world. Famously, G.K. Chesterton was asked one time, what is the greatest problem in the world today? And he answered, I am need to get into that place because most of us wouldn't answer that most of us would be blaming other people and thinking about all the ways that other people have wronged us and they have and if they have wronged you you should process through that because it's real i'm not minimizing that but in order for you to grow spiritually and to become less critical of other people you also need to see that you have victimized other people maybe there are people in the counseling room because of you maybe they're in there because you have hurt them and you may not even know it. Uh, I was uh, When I was in China as a missionary, I, w- I would play basketball often. I actually played on two different college basketball teams in China. The standard is a little bit lower over there. Um, and we would be playing in China. And, you know, there's this whole concept in this honor-shame culture of China of saving face where uh, you can't really tell people exactly what's going on in a way that would really be helpful for them. You have to go, like, around the back door you know, a bunch of hints and things going on. Well, we're playing basketball, like the best basketball players at the university, and this guy walks out in a full suit, a student. Uh, he's, got, he's got his loafers on. He's got, his, he's got a full suit coat on. And he's like, can I play in the middle of the game? we're like, sure. I mean, in America, we'd be like, no, man. <laughs> Are you kidding me? No. What's your turn? They're like, no, sure, man. That's great. So they let him play so nice. This guy, I thought, this guy's got to be amazing if he's coming out here in a suit. He's terrible. I mean, he's like never played before, you know, and people are so nice to him. And honestly, that's how we are sometimes with sin in our lives. Like, it's so obvious to everyone else what's going on with us. Like, we think we're like okay, and we're not okay, but people don't feel like they can tell us. That it's so obvious that there's this thing that if you would just know about yourself – this thing about yourself that is victimizing other people. I know that's a strong word, but it's hurting people. But you don't even know. You're like the guy with a suit on playing basketball. And if you would just go, oh, that's a huge problem. You know, the people that are most blind to their own state of being are self-righteous people. Um, I speak as one. I speak as one as a recovering Pharisee. It's, it's one where you're so aware of other people and all the ways that they don't measure up, but you can't see yourself. An example of this in Scripture is the elder brother in the story of the, the parable of the two sons. So the younger brother comes home, and he's, he's repentant, and he's wasted all this money. He's come back. He's made a mess of things, and the father forgives him, and, and the father is lavishing grace on him, and the elder brother is standing there, and the elder brother is angry. Why is he angry? Well, he he thinks he's done nothing wrong. He's looking at his record versus his brother's record, and he's like, the brother's wasted everything. He's looking at his father. He's like, you've wasted my inheritance. And so the the dad throws a party for the younger brother, and the elder brother is outside of the party. Why? Because he feels like he's been victimized. He feels like he's been victimized, and so he doesn't want to go in and party with his father and his brother. But actually, as the elder brother refuses to party, he is victimizing his father and his younger brother. He is dishonoring his father in an honor-shame culture. He is not, he's the elder brother, he's supposed to be there. He's dishonoring his brother's life. He wishes, he's saying basically, I wish you were dead. He's so self-righteous and he thinks he's right standing outside the party. But his not going in to enjoy grace is evidence of the way that his hypercritical spirit is hurting other people. So the elder brother needs to be able to say, in the story, it's left for us to know what's going to happen to the elder brother. It would be great if he said, wow, I victimize other people. Through my self-righteousness, I victimize other people. And why is that so important? Because for the Pharisee or the, the elder brother or the critical spirit person, They need to know grace. They need grace so badly in their lives. They are like that cracked, muddy, that lake that is cracked, the dry, broken cracks. And they're trying to fill in the broken cracks with all the things that are wrong with other people. It's going to make them feel better, but it never does. It just gets worse. And so they need a heavy rainstorm of grace, they need it so badly in their lives. And so you need to move from, I have been victimized, I am the victim, to I victimize others. I know it's hard to admit, but it's really helpful. Because when you start realizing that your sin victimizes other people in your marriage, maybe your children, maybe in the church, maybe in your family, there is no better place you can be if you want to receive God's grace. Because what is going on with you there, you're like, oh my goodness, I need Jesus. I have been victimizing other people constantly through my criticism, through my judgmental spirit. It becomes for you, you, you are exposed and it feels horrible. I speak from experience when you learn these things, but it is a pathway, it is a highway for grace in your life. And this is how the Pharisee changes. When they realize that it's their judgment of others that is causing such pain. And they need to receive the grace of God right there. And what happens to the Pharisee? What happens? You Think about Nicodemus. He's on the roof with Jesus. Nicodemus is one of the leading Pharisees. And Jesus is giving him more grace. We don't know how Nicodemus responded, but Jesus pursues Pharisees. The father goes outside the party. Though he's dishonored by the elder brother, he goes outside. And he entreats the elder brother and says, I love you. All I have is yours, but we need to party here. This is important. We've got to party for your younger brother. God goes outside. He goes to you if you're the Pharisee. He goes to you. If you're a person that is a, you have a critical spirit or you struggle with this, God loves you. That's one of the most powerful things that you can understand is that in your deepest, darkest sin, the one that's hardest for you to say, yes, that's true of me, God is right there with you saying, I love you. I love you. I died for that. I died for that sin. I hung on the cross for your criticism. I hung on the cross for your judgment. I hung on the cross for your self-righteousness. I know you and I love you in that place. We move to a place of dependence on God. And in that place of dependence on God, we find grace in a fresh way in our souls. You know, repentance title of this sermon is the kingdom of God and repentance repentance is it is moment in time admissions of saying I shouldn't have done that or I should have done that that's true but a better way to think about repentance is it being a state of being a state of being a state of being dependent on God a state of saying God have mercy on me have mercy on me a sinner when you're in that state where you recognize that it's all grace that you have from God Then you're ready. You're ready to be to be changed. You're ready for the third point, which is Christian eye surgery. All right. So Christian eye surgery here, prayer, repentance and love. We go back to this analogy of the blind ophthalmologist. Right. The blind ophthalmologist needs to be able to see. He really does. He's been trying to do eye surgery on other people for a long time. It's been it's been victimizing his patients. He's been doing some really, me, really messed up surgeries. And so he needs grace to be able to help other people and to be able for himself to be helped. And so how does that happen? How does that work? Well, first of all, eye surgery, it's an interesting analogy that Jesus uses. You know, eye surgery, uh, my mother-in-law just went through eye surgery. It is one of the most, the eye is one of the most delicate organs in the body, um, the very, the, just the slightly wrong touch and your vision is, is blown um, unless God heals you forever. Um, you have to be incredibly careful with eye surgery. And so this is one thing we, we need to recognize is that God is a God of grace. And this may not, this surgery, this healing, the process may take time. It may not happen all at once. In fact, it probably won't. But God is a good God and he will heal us over time. So in terms of this eye surgery, we need to evaluate the state of our souls, first of all. Like any good doctor, let's do an evaluation. If you're hypercritical with other people, or if you're really generous with other people, then that is an indication not of other people. That's an indication of the state of your own soul. And so you need to just own it. Like if you're supercritical, then that's a state, not that everybody else is messed up, it's a state that maybe you're messed up. Maybe you have something that you need to grow and if you're really generous with other people and really gracious i mean in a, in a positive way not in a way where you're overlooking sin kind of way but that's also a, a sign of, of good things happening in your life as well and you need to know you need to take account of that and do an evaluation the second thing is you need to um, pray for change you need to pray for change why i had miriam read that Second scripture, Matthew 7, is because in the Matthew version, that directly follows the version that we read in Luke. Because something that Luke did not include that Matthew does. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. I think that's very important that Jesus included this in his sermon. Because what we need to do is we need to ask God. Is there a prayer that God would honor more than God? I am a judgmental person. I'm a critical person. I want to be shaped by your grace. Would you do that work in me? Would you change my life? Would you do that eye surgery on me, God? Divine ophthalmologist, would you show me where I can't see and help me to see? That is a prayer. Because Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount, he's just waiting for you to ask for that. He's a good father. He's not going to give you the wrong thing. He's going to give you what you need. So pray. After you do the evaluation, if you see that you're hypercritical, pray that God would change your life. Pray for 1 Corinthians 13, that you would be someone who can hope in all things, endure all things, believe all things. More like Jesus. And then third, I want you to follow others. Follow others. Find a grace mentor. Okay, find someone that you feel like actually really gets this. There's a few people in our church that I think really get this for sure. And um, I think that if you're someone that struggles with this, find someone. You don't have to, like, tell them, hi, you're my grace mentor, but, but just kind of watch them. Like, how do they live? How are they so kind? How, how do they hang out with people who are obviously flawed all the time, and yet they love them? How does this work? Um, find somebody to mentor you in this. You could find someone uh, fr- current or from the past. One book that I read that really helped me with this (laughs) it does not have a catchy title in fact it would have been deeply rebranded if it was written right now but by John Owen and the title uh, which is not catchy is on the mortification of sin in the life of the believer right that would not have gotten through uh, editing for sure now but there's some really good stuff in there and what John Owen says is this and this is a great segue into the Lord's Supper here in just a minute But he said that if you struggle with this, if you struggle with really understanding God's grace and really experiencing it and giving it to others, he says maybe what you should do is this. He said, take a moment and load your conscience with the weight of your sin. Before you so quickly run to grace, which we're going to get to obviously in just a second here, but before you do that, take a minute and think about your sin, what you know of your sin, and just let your conscience sit and, and um, soak in, marinate in that. Just a minute. Think about it. And load your conscience, he says, and he has like many pages on what that means. Um, so, you know, maybe just read a, few, a little bit of it if you want to read it. But then, run with your loaded conscience. Run to Christ for grace. Uh, you need to, to take, if you're going to take that many looks at your sin, you want to take a lot of looks at the cross and recognize that Jesus died for all of that all that you know and all that you don't yet know he he knows and he died for all that and he loves you you may feel so defiled and, and if you if you're a person that finds yourself hyper judgmental of other people that's so hard to own but but jesus died for that sin in your life and you load your conscience with the weight of sin and then you run to christ for his grace i'll close with a story there was a church it's not our church um it's not a veiled our church story um <laughs> There's a church that I heard about that was just being eaten alive by a spirit of criticism. You can imagine the church. It's a, It wasn't a very big church, but something had happened in the church, and it was like the weight of judgment and, and cynicism, the spirit of censure, where everyone was looking for all the sins and pointing out. It was just this awful church experience, and the church really started to suffer from it. There was a lady in the church that simply felt called to not be a part of that. She felt called. She's like, no, I'm not going to let my church go in that direction. I am going to, I'm going to encourage where I can encourage. I'm going to give grace where I can give grace. And it became noticeable in the church. And so more and more people who knew this lady, they began to give grace instead of judgment. And over time, the church changed. The church changed. It changed as a couple of people left that really wanted to be in a church that was hypercritical. Like they, just, they just really wanted a church like that. Um, and so they left. And then a lot of people stayed, and they began to see the spirit of the church revived over time. And, and later on, as the, as the pastors and the elders reflected on what happened, what was the dynamic changer, that moved them from being this like place where nobody wanted to go to church to a place where there was the grace of the gospel, living and active, and they traced it back to this one woman and her decision not to be critical, her decision to give grace, her decision to encourage. I pray that we would be that kind of church, that because Jesus has died for us and given us such grace, that we, instead of living in judgment and criticism, since he didn't do that with us, that we would also be changed by him and live with that spirit of love spirit of forgiveness that spirit of grace that spirit of discernment some of you may be saying you know i just have a discerning spirit not a judgmental spirit maybe you do we need a spirit of discernment too but the goal of discernment is always building up the goal of discernment is never tearing down there's a world of difference between discernment and criticism let's go after discernment and truth and there is grace and truth in the gospel of jesus christ let's pray Lord God, we we need your mercy here, Lord. This is a, th- a tough one for us, um, if we're honest. We, we recognize, I recognize in my own heart this week how I can be critical. Um, it's often when I'm tired. It's often when I don't feel valued or when I'm insecure. And I think that's true for all of us, Lord. Uh, we can become hypercritical of others. Um, when we're not doing well or perhaps just systemically we we just haven't really gotten a hold of your grace and how much you care about us and love us and we're standing outside the party we are waiting outside the party with a judgmental and critical heart and lord you invite us into the party of your grace and, Lord, I pray that we would go in. I pray that as you come out to entreat us to go in, that we would go in, that we would receive your grace, Lord God, that we would recognize that we have not been condemned, so that we would we then give grace and not condemnation to others. God, would you do a spiritual work in us and, and heal us, Lord. Heal us, God, we need you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.